it is an honor and a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me today. And I'd like to take the opportunity to present uh, about 30 minutes or so on the Blessed Virgin Mary and give you a basic theological introduction. That's all one can do with such a vast subject. And then perhaps we'll have some time for some questions and conversation. Of course, you've already had some presentation on this subject. I'm going to use as the basis for today's presentation an essay I wrote on this many years ago and basically speak about this from the, the fundamental theological tradition of the undivided church. What did the church in the first millennium say about the Blessed Virgin Mary and why? So we'll, we'll look at that to begin with. So let's go ahead and get started. And then we'll pause in about 30 minutes for your comments and questions. Now, the Orthodox interpretation of the church within the first millennium affirmed a number of beliefs about the Blessed Virgin Mary, most notably, of course, and most importantly from Holy Scripture itself, the virginal conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with that, the profession of faith that Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God. I heard a number of years ago one of our bishops say that the litmus test regarding Mary for any traditional Anglican is that one has to believe that Jesus Christ was conceived and born of a virgin, and that that virgin is the true mother of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, the mother of God. Beyond that, most of these other doctrines that come to us from the early church fall into the realm of pious opinion, or if you will, theological opinion or belief, known as a theologumenon, a theological opinion. But these are doctrines that were held in the undivided church. So the early church said that Mary was mother of God, that she gave birth to the person who is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. The early church said that Our Lady never committed actual sins, and was freed from the power of original sin in one way or another. Also, the early church taught that Mary was ever virgin, that she was a perpetual virgin before, during, and after the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the divine son of Mary, true God in the flesh. And finally, the early church believed that Mary was freed from the condition of mortality and death, resulting from original sin by her glorification after death. And in the Eastern tradition, this is called the Dormition, or the falling asleep of the Blessed Virgin. In the West, we tend to use more frequently the term of Assumption, or Assumpta, in Latin, the taking up of the Blessed Virgin after she died. But let's go from those doctrines back to what is at the heart of the matter. In the English Book of Common Prayer in 1549, the commemoration of the saints refers to the Blessed Virgin as, and chiefly in the glorious and most blessed Virgin Mary, mother of thy son Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. So the Anglican tradition has that beautiful commemoration of Our Lady in the 1549 prayer book in the Mass, and that was handed down through the centuries in the English prayer book tradition. So the essential question about the Blessed Virgin was really posed in the fifth century 
during the time of the great Christological controversies, during which period the church formulated her internal teaching inherited from Christ and the apostles. And this teaching was then organized into official creedal and dogmatic statements, which we have particularly in the seven ecumenical councils. These councils represent the mind, the tradition, the consentient teaching of the church, all the way back to the apostolic era. The question of the divine motherhood of Mary pertains to the identity and person of her divine son. The question really is about our Lord and his person and natures, and only relatively or secondarily concerns the status of his mother. The church has always believed that Jesus Christ is the second person of the blessed Trinity made man, conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, as we read in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is the Word made flesh, St. John 1, and especially verses 14 to 18. God the Son, who in the fullness of time assumed human nature, took a human body, human mind, and human soul, and became true man from the Virgin Mary, his mother. So, Jesus Christ, therefore, is not simply a man or a separate human person who was adopted as God's only son, some kind of God-possessed man whom God controlled from outside as distinct from the Logos himself. The Lord Jesus is actually one divine person. He is God with two full, complete, and distinct natures. And these natures are not to be confused, yet they are united perfectly together in one person. Divine and human, Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, God the Word, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So the deity of Christ stands firmly as the central and most fundamental dogma or revealed truth of the gospel. Without the truth that the eternal Son, eternally begotten of the Father, of one substance with the Father, homo usios, that means of one substance, if we don't have that, we don't have the gospel. We believe that Christ actually condescended to become man for our sake. God assumed our human nature without the loss of his divinity, and without that, the Christian faith would be meaningless. So as St. Athanasius writes, God became man so that man might become God. Or as St. Gregory of Nazianzus put it, God can only redeem what he assumes. In the 4th and 5th centuries, certain powerful and heretical teachers denied the truth of our Lord's incarnation, most especially a dude by the name of Nestorius, Nestorius of Constantinople. He was the patriarch of the new Rome, Constantinople, and reigned in the early 5th century. To Nestorius is attributed the wrong belief that Jesus was not God incarnate, but rather a separate human person, a regular man who was somehow uniquely joined to another distinct person, God the Son. And from the time of his conception in the womb of Mary, Jesus in Nestorian theology was in effect a God-possessed human being, a man manipulated, directed by God, 
because of a unique moral union with God. But Jesus was not actually the incarnation of God in the flesh, not an actual incarnation, a sort of synthesis of the two. This heresy asserts that our Lord is simply a supreme saint, a very holy man possessed by God to a greater degree than other saints. And Jesus was thus held to be the temple of God in whom God dwells, but was not held to be the true incarnation of God. This heresy rejects the hypostatic union, that God assumed human nature and became true man, and that Jesus is perfect God and perfect man in one person. The church has always recognized from the teaching of Christ himself and from the New Testament texts, most especially, that our Lord was not some kind of paranoid schizophrenic. He was not a half-God, half-man monstrosity. Rather, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So the aforementioned error led Nestorius to refuse to acknowledge in his public preaching and teaching that the Blessed Virgin Mary is Theotokos, Mother of God or God-bearer. Nestorius introduced a false innovation by referring to Mary only as Christotokos, that is the mother of Christ, Christotokos, mother of Christ, or Anthropotokos, the mother of man. That's a mouthful. Anthropotokos, mother of man. Well, that's wrong. Thus, he denied the divinity of our Lord in connection to his human nature. The church has honored and venerated the Blessed Mother as God-bearer from the beginning of the faith. We read this actually in the pages of the New Testament. And why is this that the mother of my Lord, Mater Curiou, should come to me? That is said by St. Elizabeth to the Blessed Virgin. Why is this that the mother of my Lord, Mater Curiou, should come to me? Curios, of course, is familiar to us as Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy upon us. Kurios in Greek is the title of God, the title of honor for God, Lord, transliterated from the Hebrew Adonai, in turn replacing the divine name or the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. So when St. Elizabeth says that Mary is the mother of my Lord, she is saying that Mary is the mother of God. Our Lady is acknowledged by her cousin St. Elizabeth to be the mother, the bearer of God himself. So Mary has been consistently and unanimously honored with the title Theotokos because this essential truth, that the one to whom she gave birth as a true mother, and not just as an instrument or channel, was no one else but God himself. Mary is the true human mother of him who is God. If Jesus Christ is God and Mary is his mother, then quite logically, Mary is the mother of God. The venerable title, Mother of God, is not intended directly to glorify Mary, although it does, it certainly does that, but it does so in a secondary or consequent sense. First and foremost, Theotokos is intended to safeguard the absolutely definitive prime dogma of the incarnation of the eternal word. Nestorius violated the general Christian conscience. He violated the conscience of the church, the mind of Christ in the church, by his teaching. And his teaching ran contrary to the received interpretation and understanding of the, th of the church throughout the world. 
As a result, St. Cyril of Alexandria, who was a very feisty Orthodox bishop, openly challenged Nestorius, and this in turn led to the convening of the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. This Council of Ephesus dogmatically proclaimed the term Theotokos as an article of the Catholic creed, thus protecting the doctrine of the incarnation. So since the Council of Ephesus, the Holy Catholic Church, East and West, including of course the Anglican tradition, has honored Our Lady as the Mother of God and continues to worship and glorify Jesus Christ, the Divine Son, as one of the Holy Trinity. Thus, the theological definition of the term Mother of God became the ultimate test of faith, the touchstone of Christian orthodoxy, the greatest defense both of the divinity of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. The term Theotokos in no way implies that Mary is the mother or cause of our Lord's divine nature. No, she does not generate the divinity of Christ. That proposition would be simultaneously pagan and absurd. Theotokos solely safeguards and teaches the truth that the baby conceived in the womb, suckled at the breasts, and reared on the knee of Mary is God. It has been honestly said that those who neglect to honor the Blessed Virgin do not fully appreciate or recognize the incarnation of God as her son. It is also a fact of history and experience that Christian sects that have entirely abandoned veneration of the Blessed Mother ultimately have lost all faith in the deity and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He who does not love the mother cannot rightly worship the son. No one can honor Mary enough, for she is the very mother of God. He who honors the mother brings glory and right faith to the divinity of her son. That was written by St. Ambrose of Milan. The dogma of the hypostatic union, our Lord is one divine person with two natures, human and divine, was dogmatically defined and promulgated at the Fourth Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. And the Chalcedonian definition, too, is a received and essential component of the Catholic creed. Now let's move on to questions about the person of Mary in her personal life and how the Church has honored her. What about Mary's relationship to sin, to original sin, or actual sin? What about the way that she was brought about to be the mother of God, and what kind of life did she live? Well, these questions are simply not answered in Holy Scripture, and therefore for Anglo-Catholics, these are mostly a matter of pious opinion and belief. Orthodox Anglo-Catholics are obliged to receive as a dogma, as a dogmatic truth, or a truth revealed directly by God, and necessary for the salvation of man, only that which is contained in Holy Scripture and proven by the Scriptures. Because there is no explicit teaching in the Bible concerning Mary's sinlessness, such questions become concerns of piety, not of a saving dogmatic revelation. We are free, according to conscience, to believe that Our Lady was sinless. And this was undoubtedly the belief and the teaching of the undivided Catholic Church of the first thousand years. 
the undivided church of the first millennium in her faith, the faith of the church when the church was one, east and west, that still serves as the supreme tribunal for biblical interpretation within Anglicanism. We look to the primitive church, we look to the ancient Catholic fathers, we look to the ancient Catholic bishops and doctors in their unanimous agreement for the right understanding of the meaning of Holy Scripture. We recall that the Bible is the church's book and is only properly interpreted by the church. So the questions about Our Lady's personal life, her holiness, her advancement in the way of holiness, these are internal traditions concerning Mary, celebrated within the life of the church doxologically, doxologically. That is, they are expressed in the context of the worshiping life of the church, in her prayers, and in her liturgy. Anglicans continue to celebrate these internal mysteries of the faith through the Holy Eucharist, the offices, private devotion, along with the rest of the church, Eastern and Roman. However, these beliefs never were and are not within Anglicanism the subject of dogmatic definition. We don't teach these as though they are necessary to salvation. They are not teachings of saving necessary truth, but they're edifying traditions, edifying beliefs maintained within the heart of the church. Anglicans are free to accept or reject them according to conscience without any impact on their status as Catholic churchmen. And yet the church has taught from the beginning there are certain truths about the Blessed Virgin Mary which are helpful for us in understanding who she is and how God blessed and used her life. What of the Immaculate Conception? Father Glenn's favorite doctrine. What of the Immaculate Conception? Interestingly, the idea of the Immaculate Conception does not refer to the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. We call that the miraculous virginal conception of our Lord. And of course, that's taught in the Bible. St. Matthew 1, St. Luke 1. The Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of the Blessed Virgin in the womb of her mother, St. Anne. It teaches that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin, without inheriting the sin of Adam and Eve, in anticipation of the death and resurrection of Christ, that she might be a perfect mother for her son. Really, all the Immaculate Conception teaches is that Mary was granted by a special privilege of God the grace of Christian baptism, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, as well as freedom from the spiritual effect of original sin. But the Immaculate Conception teaches that Mary received the grace of Christian baptism at the moment she was created. Well, that's problematic. This peculiarly Roman dogma, proclaimed as necessary for salvation by Pope Pius IX in 1854, is the product of a great deal of theological speculation during the High Middle Ages. It was denied by such eminent theologians as St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Thomas Aquinas, rejected by St. Bernard and St. Thomas. It depends upon a very strict Augustinian understanding of original sin and has not been received by the Orthodox churches of the East at all. Patristic orthodoxy would tend to see this as needlessly and dangerously separating Our Lady 
from the rest of the human race and from all of the holy women of the Old Testament, of which Mary is the supreme culmination. Not only does Mary serve as a bridge between God and man, heaven and earth, in her birth-giving of God in the Incarnation, but as the mother of the Messiah, Mary serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The novel Roman dogma seems to interfere with the continuity of human nature from Adam through David and Abraham to Christ through Mary, and easily leads to a reductio ad absurdum, a reduction to absurdity, in which we ought to accept, accept or expect immaculate conceptions for St. Anne, for her mother, and so forth, all the way back to Eve. And that logically, of course, would be just plain silly. So the immaculate conception presents a real problem with this reduction to absurdity. However, the church does affirm that Mary is full of grace. We read that in St. Luke 1.28, Mary is full of grace. And therefore, she has no room in her life for sin. As she, the woman whose son is the seed that crushed the serpent's head, and who himself was bruised by the serpent, she is the mother of the Redeemer, Genesis 3.15. She is perfectly faithful and obedient to the will and the plan of God. I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, St. Luke 1.38. Mary, in essence, is the new and second Eve, who freed from the power of sin, reverses the disobedience of the first Eve by her own obedience and fidelity to God. She loosed by her obedience the knot, the knot, first tied by the disobedience of Eve. That's written by St. Irenaeus of Lyon. And St. John of Damascus writes, in the term, in the name, Theotokos, mother of God, is wrapped up the whole mystery of the economy of the salvation of God. The most ancient opinion about original sin in Our Lady was that which celebrated her freedom from original sin at the moment of the Annunciation, in which the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost Mary conceived our Lord in her now immaculate womb. This was called Our Lady's purification or catharsis, and is still generally believed in the Eastern churches today. So this view is consistent with Scripture, this overshadowing of the Holy Ghost, and we can believe that Mary received the effect of Christian baptism at the Annunciation. We can summarize the whole subject, however, with St. Augustine of Hippo, who said so beautifully, where sin is concerned, I do not even discuss it in relation to Mary. All Catholic Christians, including the Anglican Church, regardless of our personal beliefs about the conception, celebrate the Feast of Our Lady's Conception with great solemnity on December 8th. And we also celebrate the Nativity, the birthday of Mary, on September the 8th. What all Catholics adhere to faithfully is the pious belief that the Blessed Virgin Mary is negatively free from sin and positively full of all grace and virtue. And for that, we can use the term immaculate. Whether before or after her own conception, when and how and where being irrelevant, to the, century, the central beauty of her privilege. And there is a central beauty of her privilege 
which is her freedom from sin, which is maintained by the Christian tradition. So as the Bible implies it and does not require it, the church piously and simply calls Mary Panagia, the All-Holy One. Now, if we had a little more time, I would go into the question of the Dormition of Mary, and we can do that if you like. But if you like at this time, I can open things up to comments and questions. Thank you. I, I may have missed it, but could you expand a little bit on the statement that it was Augustine's view of humanity that led to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception? And I'm also curious how that may have influenced the Reformation thinkers in regards to Mary. Thank you so much for your question. It's wonderful to see you on Zoom today. Thank you for joining us. It's great to see you. A uh, wonderful question about St. Augustine. So St. Augustine's view on original sin can be described as original guilt. Original guilt is the idea that what Adam and Eve did becomes the personal culpability of every human being that we possess not only the state of mortality, corruption, death, separation from God, that original sin brought into the world by the disobedience of our first parents. That's a doctrine that all Orthodox Christians, East and West, believe. But St. Augustine went farther and said that there is a personal culpability which is inherited as sort of a legal transmission through sex. So St. Augustine's view maintained that the generative act of sexual reproduction hands down to each generation of the human family this culpability and guilt for the sin of Adam and Eve, so that we feel not only the corruption and experience not only the mortality, but we inherit this level of guilt before God brought about by Adam's disobedience. For St. Augustine, original sin is a sexually transmitted infection. It's an, an STD, effectively. It's handed down through the sexual act. So how do you fix that problem for Mary? We don't want Mary to have this generative transmission of original sin, so what can we do about it? Aha! We can come up with the Immaculate Conception. So the medieval theologians developed the idea of the Immaculate Conception because it was fitting, it was appropriate for the Mother of God not to be subject to this original guilt. And the way by which God could have done this as a fitting way would be to apply to Mary at the moment of her own conception in the womb of St. Anne, the work and person of Jesus Christ, the merits of our Lord's work on Calvary. That could be applied to Mary at the moment of her conception in anticipation of the Incarnation. And as such, therefore, Mary would be free from the original guilt of St. Augustine's theology. Now, St. Augustine is in many ways the architect of the Protestant Reformation because Luther and Calvin are hyper-Augustinians. They take the doctrine of Augustine and they run with it. They elaborate it. They well, run a riff on it, like an electric guitar. My son is a very good electric guitarist, and he likes to do riffs. So we might say that St. Augustine gives this uh, guitar to them, and they do a riff on it. They take St. Augustine's theology, and they go far, far away from where St. Augustine began. 
Now, Yaroslav Pelikan, that wonderful 20th century church historian, whom I met a couple of times, and he was a lovely man, very impressive man. He said, and rightly said, that the problem with the Protestant Reformation is that it divorces St. Augustine's doctrine of grace and salvation from St. Augustine's doctrine of church and sacraments. So Luther and Calvin abandoned Augustine's Catholic doctrine of church and sacraments and took his doctrine of grace and salvation in a very sort of unilateral way, an imbalanced way. This in turn gave rise to the soteriology of the Reformation. Wonderful question, thank you. Hello, Bishop. Hi there. Spin that out further to the Anglican divines beyond Luther and Calvin. Uh, what, would, uh, what would Hooker have said? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Richard Hooker found himself opposed by the Puritans because unlike Luther and Calvin, Richard Hooker held everything, uh, Richard Hooker held everything in balance. And this was true for the Caroline divines as a whole. Now, the Caroline divines would have seen themselves as Protestant in the old meaning of the word Protestant, which is that they proposed that the authority granted to the Pope and usurped by the Pope in the early Middle Ages was a corruption of the ancient faith. And their reformation was intended to bring the faith back into balance. They would protest the usurpations of the papacy. They would protest everything that was not part of the consensus of the early church and especially of the early fathers, East and West. Richard Hooker's theology of grace and salvation is in line generally with the patristic corpus and consensus of the first five centuries. So even Hooker would have held Augustine in balance with, say, Gregory of Nazianzus, Cyril of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, Basil the Great. Richard Hooker was really a patristic scholar. So he, he has a sort of weak Eucharistic doctrine where he, in, in some extent, Hooker is a receptionist where he wants to say that we should look for the presence of Christ, not so much in the host as in the heart. <laughs> and he uses some language along those lines, but he does believe that there is an ob objective grace given in the Eucharist. And he does believe that there is an objective grace in all of the sacraments. So what restrains Hooker and the Caroline divines from going too far afield into hyper-Augustinianism is their willingness to defer to the fathers. I like to say that all of the magisterial reformers believed that they were being loyal to the church fathers. All of the magisterial reformers had recourse to the corpus of patristic literature. And they would all say that they were being faithful to the early Christian tradition and to the teaching of the church fathers. But only the Anglicans really did it or did it in a more consistent and general way. Richard Hooker is an excellent example of that because he wants to test his teaching up against the fathers and what they actually offer to the church in terms of instruction. The definitive hallmark of the Caroline divines is this careful balance between scripture, the fathers of the early church, and the application 
of reason, or what we might call natural law. It's not really a three-legged stool because scripture is primary. Then you have the fathers who have a great authority. And, and then the reason is to smooth things out and make us apply this in a rational way. So Anglicans never had the kind of hyper-Augustinianism that you find, for example, in Luther or Calvin or, or Zwingli, uh, Zwingli, very extreme, although I would say that that's not even really Augustinian. He comes up with his own form of nominalism that's far beyond anything that one could even claim for St. Augustine. So that's how I would begin to answer that. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank novel. you. Um, I was wondering if you could go over any differences you know between um, Eastern Orthodox Marian doctrine if you know how however they teach that and sort of if there are major differences between that and what we may believe or something to that effect oh that's marvelous thank you so much and by the way these questions and thoughts have been absolutely superb i'm not surprised at all <laughs> this is great keeping me on my toes today well where will we differ with the eastern orthodox i think principally it's a matter of expression and application because if you look at the Caroline Divines, for example, they write glorious hymns in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You think of poets and writers who express the dignity and the prerogatives of the Mother of God. Our tainted nature's solitary boast, for example. And one example of an Anglican writer there, uh, Wordsworth, our tainted nature's solitary boast. And then you have, uh, George uh, Herbert, who writes beautiful poetry, some of which refers to Mary. And then you have later Caroline Divines who write uh, of the Virgin Mother born, for example. Anglicanism has a marvelous hymnody tradition, a hymnological tradition regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary, in which we have doctrine in which we clearly have Mary exposited as the new Eve, as the second Eve, as the mother of God. That's found very much in Anglican literature. The Eastern Orthodox, like us, would not dogmatize any of the essential beliefs of the ancient church regarding Mary. They refuse to make these dogmas, but they do insist upon their truth. And the way that the Eastern Orthodox would express the truths of the Blessed Virgin as they believe them would be liturgically in the cycle of the church year, the Christian year, the liturgical calendar, the great feasts of the church. The Eastern Orthodox believe that Mary is without sin, that she is free from original sin, and she never committed actual sins. They believe very clearly that she is ever virgin, that she is perpetual virgin. They believe that Mary died and was physically glorified after death and taken into heaven. And this is called the koimesis, or the dormitio, the falling asleep of the Blessed Virgin. Mostly the Eastern Orthodox churches express these doctrines in the hymns and the prayers and the readings of the liturgy. But they do believe that these doctrines are all true. Now, I think where we may vary somewhat is we would say in Anglicanism that the perpetual virginity, the physical glorification of Mary, and her sinlessness are pious opinions or beliefs which cannot be imposed upon the faithful as a dogma, as a tradition or a teaching or a truth, 
revealed by God and necessary for salvation. We would not go that far. The Orthodox would say that if you reject these doctrines, you're not Orthodox. Although, again, they would say they're not dogmas. The difficulty with Eastern Orthodoxy is that it, tend to, it tends to be uh, sort of opposed to the idea of systematic theology. It generally doesn't have what we would call a dogmatic theology. We Anglicans have a, a crisper theological method. Although like the Orthodox, our liturgical theology is, to a very true extent, a systematic or a dogmatic theology. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, is the law of living. And for Anglicanism, there is very much this doxological aspect to saving truth or sacra doctrina, sacred doctrine. It is expressed to us in its highest form in the liturgical way. So where do we really differ with the East? It's a difference of flavor. It's a difference of culture. It's a difference of liturgical expression. But the doctrines are shared in common. The American Missal, the Anglican Missal, has exactly the same doctrine as the Eastern Orthodox Church regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary. Thank you. That's wonderful. Bishop Chad, I asked this question the other day when we were talking about the values, the, um, well, we were just studying Maskell's um, uh, writing on Mary. And I am embarrassed to ask this question again because it seems more, after hearing you, it seems more self-centered than Christ-centered. But here's the question. Is it a departure from those very important doctrines to see Mary as a model, a human model or a model for us as women, as mothers? Not at all. In fact, Mary is the supreme example of motherhood, and I think she should be seen that way. With all of our lofty discussion about the theological foundations or the theological underpinning of the Blessed Virgin, nevertheless, it is her role as a Christian exemplar that is most personal. And we should see Mary as the perfect mother, the perfect woman, the perfect representative of the human race from that end, that side of things. Mary is the personification of the church. She is the image of the church, the icon of the church. She is the prototypical Christian. And above all those things, she is a loving human mother. She loved her son and loved her son without the taint of sin, according to the early church so that Mary was able to give her son a perfect love and to care for him, to tend for him as a human mother. And so she is a, a supreme exemplar, not only for mothers, but for every Christian. And that is why we look to Mary as the highest and greatest of Christian disciples. She was the first evangelical. She was the first believer. She was the first disciple of Jesus. And she was the first example of the Christian life. So we should be very practical about Our Lady. She is all of those things. St. Augustine says that she believed, she was a believer, she conceived Jesus in her heart, her heart, by the hearing of the word of God from the archangel in the ear, 
before she conceived Christ in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Mary believed the gospel and she applied it to her own life and the life of her family. So we should look to Mary as the supreme example of Christian, Christian living, Christian motherhood, Christian discipleship. She knows what it is to be a mama. Jesus was a mama's boy. The Christian faith makes that very, very clear. Jesus was a mama's boy. And when we honor the Blessed Virgin Mary, we are keeping the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. And Mary is the mother of the church, the mother of Christians. St. John chapter 19, behold your mother. She is our mother in the order of grace. And so we too should be children of that mother and see her as a fantastic example of what it means to be a Christian mother, a, a, a Christian in every sense, a homemaker, someone employed, someone who works, someone who cares for other people, who is a caretaker, a caregiver. Mary is all of those things. And we can look to her and her life as an example of what it means to be a Christian in every vocation in life. So I think that's a wonderful way of looking at her. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> you, you, you referred a while back to how Mary was con essentially conferred with the benefits of baptism at the moment the Holy Ghost came upon her. Yes, that's that the out, that, to that view. Right. What, what is, so she was the first baptized. <laughs> In a sense, yes. Uh, yes, she would have been for the sake of her divine son and to be the mother of God, because Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer. She is unique in all of the human race and all of human history. No other human being has ever possessed the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in particular given to her, or the uniqueness, the dignity of her vocation because Our Lady was and is the, the throne and the temple of God, the one in whom God dwelt by virtue of the incarnation. So in order for Mary to be the spotless Theotokos, to be the agent of the incarnation, it is the ancient tradition of the church that when the Holy Ghost came upon her and put God inside of her, in her womb, with a human body and soul, God in a human nature. God did for the Blessed Virgin at that moment what he would later confer on the apostles at Pentecost and what he would later confer upon all Christians by means of the sacrament of holy baptism. We might say that there was a sequential outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that each person who receives the Holy Spirit at a particular time receives the effect of baptism. Mary is first in the order of grace because Mary is the first member of the church. She is the personification of the church, the image of the church, but she is also the means by which the incarnation takes place. So when the archangel says to Mary, the power of the Most High will come upon you or overshadow you and the Holy Ghost will be poured out upon you. When the archangel Gabriel says that, we might say that that outpouring is like a proto-Pentecost. The Holy Ghost is being poured out upon Mary so that God can be conceived in her body, that her body becomes the temple of God, the Word, in the incarnation. 
So Mary receives the effect of Christian baptism first, then the apostles receive the outpouring, uh, both when our Lord rises from the dead, and he says to them, receive the Holy Ghost, in St. John chapter 21, and pouring out the Holy Ghost upon the apostles, makes them the priests of the New Testament, and then pours out the Holy Spirit upon the whole gathered church at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, in all of these instances, we see the Holy Ghost is given so that these people filled with the Spirit are united to Christ in his mystical body and equipped for their Christian vocation. Certainly, we can say that by Pentecost, the entire church has the outpouring of the Spirit and the grace of Christian baptism in an extraordinary and unique way. But Mary gets to go first because her role and her, her person in this respect is unique. Marvelous question. And thought. Thank you Thank very you. much. Yeah, Bishop, I was just wondering if you're familiar with the early biography of Mary that the Orthodox use, and um, that biography says, well, they, it, it tells the story of how Mary was raised in the temple, like Samuel, and I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Yes, indeed. That is a book that in some local churches was put into the biblical canon. Now, it was not included in the canon that eventually came down to us because it's a product of the late first or early second century, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. The Proto-Evangelium of James. It is a late first century or early second century work. It is part of what is called the Apocryphal New Testament, or the New Testament Apocrypha. It is not of divine origin, it is an early Christian meditation on the life of Mary gathered from other early Christian sources. It does not possess infallibility or inerrancy, but it does give us an insight into what the earliest Christians believed about what happened to Mary in her conception, birth, early life, before the incarnation of our Lord. Now, there are some fascinating details provided in the Proto-Evangelium of James, we are told from this text that the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary are Saint Anne and Saint Joachim. Anna and Joachim, these are the parents of Mary. They were unable to conceive children after trying for many years. They were barren, and we read that God enabled them to come together in natural intercourse and have a child, and that child was Mary. And the chi that child who was Mary, as a young girl, was taken to the temple in Jerusalem and dedicated to God as a virgin. So her virginity was consecrated to God in the temple in Jerusalem by the high priest, and she lived in the temple. And she would live in the temple for periods of time up until such time as she was married to St. Joseph. Now, we can't confirm whether or not those stories are true. They are apocryphal, but the Eastern Orthodox tradition uses those to formulate texts in the liturgical cycle of the church, and they actually pray these texts as part of the Christian tradition. We are not bound to them. They're wonderful stories, fascinating insights, but the most that we can say is that this is a reflection of the devotion of the early Christian communities in the late first and early second centuries into the end of the second century 
these are the ideas, these are the beliefs that were being circulated about the person of Mary. We can't commit to them with any kind of historical accuracy, but we can certainly use them for our own personal edification and devotion. So if you're interested in getting a copy, it's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Well, Bishop, thank you so very much for, um, yeah. for talking to us and, um, and giving us this um, information.